Let's read verse 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Some background. Let's stop right there for a second. Here's this guy, Jesus. He has his disciples, right? And at this time, we know that two weeks ago, Jesus was talking, well, it was two weeks ago that we were talking about Jesus and John the Baptist. Um, And before that, if you remember, Jesus was speaking to a man named Nicodemus, who was a religious ruler. He knew the whole Bible. He knew everything. And Jesus took his time to speak to an individual in order that he would know that he has to despair of his old life in order to hope in a new one. If you remember that. Sometimes you got to lose confidence in yourself in order to realize that you need help. And that's what we learned about Nicodemus. But he had that biblical knowledge. And what we see here is that Jesus took time not just to speak to one individual who is a, uh, a Pharisee and, and a ruler and who knew the Bible really well, but also took time to speak to someone who was an outcast. Not just by culture, but also by that person's own community. And so what we see here is it says he needed to go through Samaria. So you have, uh, you know, we know that this, the quickest way between two points is a straight line. And so it would seem like Samaria makes sense, but you have to realize something. The Jewish people and the Samaritans were totally in, they, they totally hated each other. They couldn't stand each other. In fact, a Jewish person would call someone a Samaritan as like a curse word. And we find out in John chapter 8 later on that Jesus is actually called a Samaritan. And he says, uh, people say to him, oh, and you have a demon as well. So it was something that was derogatory when you would say that. And why is that? Well, as you know, King David had his son, uh, King Solomon, and he had his kingdom divided in between two kingdoms. You had the kingdom of the north, which was Israel, and the kingdom of the south. And the kingdom of the north was Uh, captured at 722 BC by the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians came into the the land of Israel and they intermingled with the Jewish people. And so what happened is you had these kind of half-breeds. They were like half-Jew and half-Samaritan. And we knew that from the Bible and from the Old Testament, the Jewish people were to be sanctified, set apart, not to be like any other nation. So by defiling themselves, defiling themselves, adopting these pagan practices of these other people, they became these half-breeds, kind of like, like a half-Jewish person, half-Japanese person, like me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a half-breed, I guess. I am a Samaritan. I never thought about this. It's bad. But so the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as these kind of outcasts that weren't to be accepted by the rest of the Jewish people. And so the Samaritans recognized this, And they didn't accept the rest of the Bible. They only accept the first five books of the law. And then they erected their own altar to God and said the the proper place to worship God is not Jerusalem. It's in Mount Gerizim. And so they had their own regulations, their own rules, and their own teachers, and their own way of doing things, believing that they were worshiping God in the right way. And so when it says Jesus needed to go through Samaria, Jesus being a Jew, sounds kind of weird. Like, why would Jesus need to? And we know that's because he was divinely appointed to meet someone there. He had an appointment. He had to meet someone that needed him. 
So you right now might be in that same position. Jesus needs to meet with you. You're not here by coincidence. You're here because God himself wants to speak to you. Maybe you're a person who's joking around right now and you're not paying attention. It's because you don't really believe that Jesus wants to speak to you. If you're willing to receive it, he can change your life. As we're going to see in this passage, he did with this woman. So he came to the city, verse 5, of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So a bunch of things that we can say right here. First of all, let me just summarize because maybe you're just, everything I just said just went over your head and you're like, I already zoned out. I'm thinking about the Super Bowl. I'm thinking about food. I'm thinking about hanging out with my friends. So what happens? Here's a woman who's a Samaritan, remember. So Jesus is a Jew talking to a Samaritan. And Jesus asks this woman, give me a drink. And in our culture, just reading like, wow, that was kind of rude of Jesus. You know, Jesus is like, hey, guys, go get me lunch. And then the disciples are like, yeah, we'll go get you lunch. And then while he's gone, he's like, ha, I'm going to totally, like, like, rip this woman off and, and ask for a drink. No, that's not what happened. Actually, Jesus, by asking her for a drink, was giving her honor. Because women in that day, it was actually seen as not only embarrassing, but it was detestable for a rabbi to speak to a woman in public. That's just the culture. The way it was. So not only was she a Samaritan, not only was she a woman, but we find out later this woman was sleeping around. And because of those three things, she was an outcast by her society. We see here that she, this woman was alone. She came to this well because, you know, you're thirsty, you need to get some water from, from the well and draw it. But she came alone. And we know that, you know, girls do everything together. They go to the bathroom together. They go to the malls together. It's like... They didn't have their posse. And this woman was an outcast, not by, only by her culture, her community, but she was an outcast by her friends as well. And she goes by herself. And Jesus takes the time to speak to this woman that the rest of the world would shun. I think that's so important because we know that term, right? Guilty by association. That term, guilty by association, what does it mean? You can raise your hand. What, do you, what does that mean? What does it mean to be guilty by association? Yes, Evan. He said, by so associating with people that are guilty, you are guilty yourself. That's exactly right. He said it just like it is and just like it sounds. You've heard the, the phrase, bad company corrupts good morals. And so this is how we, we play it out in society, right? We, we have friends that we all know are the bad kids. Like, we don't want to hang around those people because, like, they're going to get me into, like, playing video games and I'm going to be up, like, 32 hours a day and, like, my parents are going to yell at me and kick me out. Like, my, my parents are like, don't hang out with that bum because, you know, he doesn't even have a job and stuff. You have those people that you are guilty by association just by being friends with them. You hang out with the wrong crowd. You're hanging out with those people that, you know, they're into the wrong things. They're drinking. They're doing drugs. And people look at you a certain way. Now check this out. 
let's say your favorite Christian artist was coming to New Jersey to play a concert. Who would you expect him to hang out with? You know, Phil Wickham, when he played Bridgefest a number of years ago, I, got, I almost was able to watch uh, the last Batman movie with him. I was like this close. I was like, you know, being friendly with him, got him to sing like a random Transformers movie song and stuff. And like, yeah, we were talking about, we weren't even talking about anything. We were talking about like H&M or something dumb. That's probably what he talks about all the time anyway. But um, Phil Wickham wouldn't come to New Jersey just to hang out with me. We're not that tight. Now, what would be even weirder is if you found out Phil Wickham was going to a strip club, right? That'd be a little weird. If you heard Phil Wickham was hanging out with a prostitute, you would think something is up because he's guilty by association. Now, let's, let's magnify that, that stereotype by a thousands, and let's say the God of the universe associating with a person who's an outcast by society and also a morally uh, depraved person. She's lost. She's empty. She doesn't know what she's doing. But Jesus takes time to speak with this woman. I think that is so important. Moving on. It says in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, this woman, she has no idea that this is God. Has no idea what Jesus can do for her in her circumstances. She's just going to the well to get some water. But Jesus had other plans. He was using the circumstances around him in order to talk about heavenly things. And we can take that model as well. When we're going out and doing evangelism, we can go talk to our friends and use the circumstances around us to talk about heavenly things. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. But I think what's so important is, let's think about for a second who this woman was. She was a Samaritan. She was an outcast by every uh, sort in society. And I think as Christians, we need to model our Savior in reaching those that society would otherwise ignore. Sometimes you only want to hang out with the cool kids. You only want to hang out with the popular kids. You want to look good in their eyes. And it seems like Jesus doesn't really do that, right? He doesn't go to the kings. He doesn't go to the rulers. He goes to the people that others value the least. I remember when I started off in youth group, uh, my youth pastor, I've been talking about him a lot, I guess, but he used to call me Alex and Enrique. Those were the like, he thought my name was Enrique. I'm like, really? My name is Alan. It is nowhere near Enrique. But for like a good two years, that's what he called me. You know, so I was that unpopular kid. It happens. I think sometimes what we do is we look at the world and we're like, if that person got saved, imagine what they could do. But you know what? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things of this world, the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. 
So not only was she a Samaritan, she was a, a woman. And I think, I think the most harmful stereotypes are the ones that you have absolutely no control over. It's just the way that you are. It's a circumstance. When people say things like, like father, like son, and your father could be a deadbeat dad. He could be a person that just completely does not care about your family. And people look at you and assume that you're going you're gonna to take those traits. Maybe it's a, a brother or sister. And people see what your brother or sister has done and the bad choices they've made and just assume that you're going to make the exact same choices. Figure you're guilty by association. Those are really harmful stereotypes. And that's what happened to Jesus later on. People would actually say to him, you know, at least we know who our dad is. They would make fun of Jesus using that stereotype. But I think it's really important to know, pay attention, Jesus does not believe those stereotypes about you. He knows who you truly are. It doesn't matter what people are calling you in school. It doesn't matter what people are saying about you. God knows who you really are. And he can draw out the best in you because he created you for a specific purpose. So don't look at your limitations and compare your progress. Don't look at everyone else and say, that person's gifted, that person's used, and that person's holy. Look at what God has given you. Don't doubt the fact that God wants to use you in a mighty way. Sometimes we, we think about the parable of the, the, the tortoise and the hare. The parable, like it's in the Bible. Whatever, the story, the fable. I don't know what it's called. That thing, tortoise and the hare. And we look at the tortoises and say, there's absolutely no way that guy's going to win the race. But he does, right? The hare takes a nap, the tortoise wins. Don't look at your limitations. Look at God. And look at what God can do in any life. Lastly, not only was she a Samaritan, she was a woman, but she was sleeping around. I think a lot of us as Christians can look down on those who are trapped in sin. We kind of treat them like they're contagious. We treat them like, oh, I don't know, this person, like, they're going to totally, like, if I hang out with them and they, they do all this bad stuff, I might start doing the bad stuff. And to a degree, it might be true. But you can't ever look down on those people. You can't ever look at them and say, well, they're beyond hope. That person is just the way that they talk and, the, and they are beyond God's reach because it's just simply not true. It's not true at all. So Jesus says to this woman, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift of God. And some of you don't know the gift of God that he's given you. And that's why you're doubting. And that's why you're always returning to that well to be filled and coming back empty. It's because you don't know the gift of God that he's given you. That was good for emphasis. Let's bring it back. We've been talking a lot about this in this series, that the wider your perception, the deeper your conviction. The more you know about God and who he is, the more you are convinced and convicted and, and know that you can't depart from his ways because his ways are perfect. Nothing else in this world will satisfy other than God and his ways, other than Jesus and a relationship with him. And if you don't have that, you'll always go to those wells in the world. You'll always go to sex. You'll always go to drugs. You'll always go to fame, pursuing happiness, but never actually obtaining it because only God can give you that joy that the world can't take away. Only Jesus can give you that peace that surpasses anything you can understand. So if you knew that gift, 
If she only knew that gift, she would have asked for living water. If she knew the gift. You know, there is a, an auction that happened recently where this person bought a Chinese bowl for $3. And for whatever reason, I don't know, it had some ancient Chinese magic on it. It got sold in an auction for $2.2 million. Don't you wish that was you? Don't you wish you were that person that found that bowl and was able to sell it for that much money? You know what the difference is? Someone sold value in something that other people thought was valueless. That's the difference. Someone saw value in what other people perceived as valueless. Don't despise the gift that God has given you. And the ultimate gift we understand is God's word. Don't despise his gift, the word of God, the Bible. You realize anything you need to know in this life, any question you have can be answered by simply opening up the Bible and reading. To the degree that you want the voice of God is to the degree that you'll actually read his word. You'll spend time in the morning. You'll spend time at night. You'll be meditating on it because you know that it is a source of life. It has living water in it. You also need to know the giver. He who says to you, give me a drink. You need to know that God is generous. I mean, he wants to give you stuff. If he was willing to die for you on a cross 2,000 years ago so that you today would be here, not by coincidence, but by his planning, wouldn't he give you everything else? You think he's just like, yeah, you'll get to go to heaven, but while you're on this earth, you're going to be really bored. No. But it's a life, and that more abundantly. That's what he says in John chapter 10, verse 10. So you need to know the gift, the giver, and the guarantee. The guarantee that one day you're going to receive that reward in heaven. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank, drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? This woman has absolutely no idea what's going on. She has no idea. She's like, wait, so you're talking about living water and well, you don't even have a bucket. Like you come to this well and you're talking about this water stuff, but like where are you going to like get this water? Like you need to like at least dig down and like Jacob, I mean, the guy who made this well, he dug pretty deep to get into the, you think you're better than him? You think you're better at digging? Because he was pretty good. This woman has no idea because she's not able to see the spiritual side and what Jesus is really talking about. And sometimes we, we take God and we put him in our box and we say, all right, if God is going to move in my life, he has to take care of this and take care of that and take care of this problem. And you look at your life, and you're like, well, this, this life is a mess. If God is going to work, he's going to have to do it this way and that way and this way. And God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As high as heaven is, the galaxies are from the earth and heaven in the spiritual realm. That's how high my, hot, my, my thoughts are towards you. They're so different. So different. And so she has no idea what he's talking about. Where then do you get this living water? And I think if she, if she only knew what really satisfies, if she only knew who was talking to her and the person, I mean, 
she's talking about a physical person, Jacob. She's talking about a person who's human, that was, that was you know, mortal, and not realizing that Jesus himself is the person who, who planned out Jacob's life. A lot of people look at their life and say, if I only had, I would be happy. If I only had this, this one thing. And we're always searching for those things outside of God. But if you think about it, let's just break it down. Everyone just think really hard with me. What is happiness? We always talk about wanting happiness, but what is it? Well, it can't be pleasure, right? Because pleasure we see as something that is fleeting. Whereas happiness we know is a state that's always there. And that's what we're always chasing after. We know pleasure is, is, gives us a taste of happiness, but it, it goes away. You lose it. Well, maybe happiness is being famous. Well, that's not true because there's plenty of famous people that aren't happy. All right, well, maybe happiness is having a lot of things. Well, we also know a lot of wealthy people that are not happy. Well, maybe, maybe happiness is living a good life. If I just do all the right things and I'm just a morally good person, that's how I'll really be happy. But that's not true either because we can think of a person who's falsely convicted of a crime, thrown in jail, and although he didn't do anything wrong, he's not happy. He's not like, oh, I'm in jail. I'm so happy even though I didn't do anything wrong. No, he's, he's sad. So what is happiness? If sex, money, and fame were the keys to happiness, why aren't celebrities the most happy people on the planet? That should give us a clue that there is something that has evaded us. C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You have a desire for food? It's because there's something to eat. If you have a desire for true satisfaction, it must really be out there. And the things of this world can't give it to you. The wells that you'll dig in will always leave you empty. But Jesus talks about living water. Water that springs up from the bottom and doesn't just run dry. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It's completely different than what you're thinking about. You know, if you try to drink salt water, although it's water, you know, if you try to drink salt water, it'll always make you more thirsty. You have to find the water that truly satisfies. People today are so confused. They don't know what's going on. You realize I just read it in a study the other day that people are starting to have a part-time dating phase before dating where you're kind of, you're trying people out and you're, you're having sex with people even before you start dating to find out if you're sexually compatible so that you're dating compatible so that one day you're, you're compatible for marriage. It is screwed up. People don't know what they're doing. Excuse my language. People don't understand what really satisfies. Unfortunately, I, I also read in the news the other day, there is a mom who had two kids, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And she just felt like, you know, meeting up with some guy. And she had sex with him in, in a car uh, next to her car, leaving her kids in the car on a hot summer day, and both children died. 
while she was out pleasing herself, her children died. People today are willing to sacrifice so many things for pleasure, for what lasts in the moment. As we learned a couple weeks ago, living for the moment really just means that you believe there's no particular moment worth living for. It means that you don't believe in hope for the future, that there's something worth waiting for. You know, when Jesus talks about sex and the parameters on sex and don't have sex before marriage, it's not because he wants to be a killjoy on sex. It's because he wants you to have the best sex. And that's only through marriage. I mean, look at how many marriages end, end in divorce today because everyone's looking to please themselves. Everyone's looking for what's fleeting in the moment. And that will always leave you empty. But if you follow God's guidelines, I mean, think about this for a second. If God is perfect and he gives you the perfect way to do something, right? We're not better than God. We're not smarter than God. You're not even smarter than like, you know, the brilliant people on this planet, let alone God. But God says, here are the ways to get the most fulfillment out of something. How can the imperfect use of a perfect thing ever be better than the perfect use of a perfect thing? If God has given us money, how can we think an imperfect use of money is going to be better than the perfect way to use it? If God gives us sex, how can we think the imperfect way, the selfish way, is going to be better than the way that God has designed it? God designed your bodies for one reason and one reason only. To worship him. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Because he knows what he's doing. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 God says, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. You see, people don't realize that what they're doing in their life is always going to leave them empty. Like, if I look at my life and the things I've sacrificed, I don't regret it. You kidding me? Like, nothing you ever do for God, you'll ever be like, oh, why did I do that? Why Oh, I can't believe I read my Bible. I can't believe I evangelized that person. Now they're saved. They're going to heaven. Oh, my gosh, it's so boring. No, like, I, my life's pretty fun. I'm not just bragging, but, like, it's pretty good. I get to go out and climb and have fun with people. I get to hang out with you guys. And, like, on my vacations, I go out and do these cool things and, like, win quick check competitions and whatever. And, like, I know that my future is secure. My past is cleared. I have no guilt for the things that I do now. And I don't need to have guilt for the future because I have a redeemer for every single action that I do wrong. And I have faith that even when I have hard times, he's going to be there in those hard times. When people in my life pass away or they walk away, I know that I still have a person that will be the comfort even when I'm in the most lonely of times. The Holy Spirit himself lives inside of my heart so that I am never alone. That's a guarantee that the world doesn't have. Do you know the gift? Do you know the giver? Do you know the guarantee? Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Just imagine this, the shame of this poor woman. She's tired. She's not even necessarily looking for God. She's just She's just so tired of being empty. I am so, you can almost hear it in her voice. I am so sick and tired of coming to this well alone. I'm so sick and tired of being ridiculed by my friends. So tired of being an outcast by society. Coming to this well and continually leaving empty. It'd be really great if you give me this water that I don't have to come back to this well. 
I'll never thirst again. Look what Jesus says to her. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Ouch. Jeez. Jeez, Jesus. Uh, You could have uh, put that a little bit more lightly. Why did he do that? You see, Jesus wanted to bring to light the barrier to accepting him. You can't have the good things of God without having God himself. You can't have the happiness, the fulfillment, the pleasure, all those things without accepting God in his ways. And so what he wanted to do is address the thing that was keeping her from God. It's your sin. You need to repent. What is your sin? What's keeping you from God? A lot of us will live our lives and do, do these things in the world and like you'll, you'll, you'll want to party it up or live it up. What's keeping you from God? Is it really satisfying? How is that working for you? You want to just live your life and you want to go out and party all the time? How's that working for you? Oh yeah, well I guess when I am alone at night, I guess I am when I'm thinking on my bed. Well, I don't try to think. I try to drown it out with music or I try not thinking about how miserable my life is and my future is not secure and I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. People try to drown out that noise and just live for the moment. And Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The deny yourself is bookended by follow Jesus. So here he talks about the barrier. The sin in her life must be confronted. The gospel must include repentance. Verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our father is worshipped here on this mountain, and you Jews say that in, in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And now you're like, what? you just totally lost me. Jesus says, go call your husband, and she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, you've had five, and the one you're, you're living with now is not your husband. Good job. And she's like, you know, our father's worshipped on this mountain, and uh, so like completely just sidetracking. Perhaps it's because of shame. Perhaps she's really genuine and just really wants to know. But the cool thing is, while she goes on her side tangent, don't miss this, Jesus meets her where she's at. Jesus doesn't be like, hey, uh, you totally ignored the fact that I just pointed out your sin. Jesus follows her where she's going and meets her where she's at. Let's find out what he does. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Remember what we talked about with that distinction? Samaritans on Mount Gerizim and Jews uh, believe that you have to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We, know. we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you, Am he. You see, she was worried about the location of worship as if it could make you closer to God. It's not your spatial location, it's your spiritual condition that makes you closer to God. It's not 
being over here, Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge, it's not being out there in the world and feeling like you're all alone because when you have the Holy Spirit, you're able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Some people feel like I have to clean up my act before I come to God. No, let God transform your life from the inside out. Then you're able to have God go with you wherever you go. It's not the spatial location. It's your spiritual condition. And that's exactly what he points out to her. He follows her tangent, meets her where she's at, and God can do the same with you. Because it doesn't matter where you're going in a conversation, God can speak to you. Even when you're distracting yourself, even when you're putting in the headphones and you're not listening to anyone else, God can still speak to you. And maybe he's done this for you too, speak to you through the people that are singing those songs. He can still reach you while you're on the internet, while you're on Facebook. People text you a Bible verse. Why? Because God is pursuing you because he's madly in love with you. And no matter how far away you walk away from him, no matter how, how distant you feel from God, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That all would just simply turn around. You're never too far gone. You're never like this woman who, who feels like an outcast by society and by her friends and by everyone else. It's never too late for you to turn around. That's what repent means. It just turn, go the opposite direction. And God will be able to speak to you and meet you. Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came. And they marveled. They were shocked. Like, what is going on? He's talking to this woman who's been sleeping around. Oh, no. So our hopes and dreams, everything is coming crashing down. Guilty by association. Well, this is what happened. They marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Because they're like, all right, why don't you go and accuse Jesus of doing something wrong? No, why don't, well, someone has to hold Jesus accountable, uh, accountable, so, and no one said anything. Verse 28, then the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? After Jesus reveals himself to this woman, there are three things that he does here or that she does here, rather, that are so amazing. First of all, what does she do? She leaves her water pot. And I think this is such a great example of how we should live our life when we're coming to Jesus. You leave behind those empty vessels. Just go. You got living water. You don't need it anymore. You need to go on those websites anymore. You don't have to go to those people. You don't have to hang out with those friends anymore because you have living water, and that's all that counts, that that's what, all that matters. Some of you are afraid of repenting because you're afraid of losing the things that you've gained. Those friends that you've made, those connections you've had, you'll never lose anything if you come to Jesus because he is able to not only give you something that fills now, but it overflows and fills other people. You just have so much spirit. You have so much joy that you're able to overflow and give life to other people. And so that's what she does. She's overflowing. She's found the Messiah, and she has to tell someone about it. So second thing she does, she went her way into the city. She went her way into the city. What a cool thing. She fully makes that repentance and returns to the same people that she previously had reason to avoid. Like, think about this. She was an outcast. She went alone, but she goes and meets with people. Now, some of you might think, well, my testimony is garbage now. Like, how am I ever going to tell people about Jesus? I'm not even living a life that's acceptable before God. Pay attention. Your testimony is not witnessing of yourself. It's witnessing of what Jesus has done. And it doesn't matter how your life looks as long as you're testifying of the life-changing power that's in Jesus Christ. 
We're all sinners. We all screw up and we all have problems, but we know the solution. It's like Norman Geisler once said, we're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. The last thing she does is that she said to the men, she witnessed of Christ and said, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. She bore witness to those same people. She spoke it. She didn't just like walk around and be like, well, now I'm changed and I look pretty changed, right? No, she said something about it. Are we going out into the world and telling them the life-changing power that's in Jesus Christ? We have a world that's just going bonkers. They don't know what they're doing. But we have the secret. That's why we meet together. That's, that's why we're here. Because we want to learn about Jesus. Almost done. Here we go. It says in verse 30, Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you know, do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Like, disciples are, like, pretty mad now, I can imagine. They're like, hey, Jesus, what are we going to do now? Why don't you go into the marketplace and go get us some food? And disciples are like, great. Come back. He's talking to some woman. And, like, Jesus, like, you hungry? Like, we got you your food. He's like, I have food that you know nothing about. It's like, is this woman feeding Jesus while we're gone? Like, why do we go and buy the food if you're going to eat with some woman that we even know? And, like, I'm not going to talk about this. We'll talk about this later, Jesus. See what he's saying. Because oftentimes, the disciples have no idea what he's talking about because they're not seeing with, with spiritual eyes. They're not setting their eyes on the, the kingdom of God. So what Jesus is saying is, he's referring to the Old Testament where it says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, there's something fulfilling about doing God's work. And that's what he's talking about. And he continues on in verse uh, 34, my, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. Guys, listen. Some of you are waiting. At the opportune time, I will witness to someone. At the opportune time, I will tell this person about Jesus. The fields are already ripe for harvest. Are you hungry? There are people out there that need Jesus. Are you willing to go out there and reap that harvest? Man, you realize when someone comes to know Jesus, it's not because you did anything great. It's just because it was the right time. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Don't, they had the saying back in the day, like if you're tilling the ground and you're, you're planting some seed, it takes about four months to, to reap a harvest. It's, like, it's been like four months. It's already ripe. It's ready. And he who reaps receives wages, in verse 36, and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this saying, in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that for, that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. They, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, but for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What I love about these last couple of verses 
And I know a lot of you have probably checked out in your minds because I stopped reading um, the last verse. But hone in on this because this is so important. And this is maybe, maybe the most important thing that I've said to you in the time that I've worked, I've worked here at the church and have taken over impact. So this woman goes and testifies and says, come see a man who's, who has told me everything that I've ever done. Jesus knew everything about this woman. Every single thing that she did and still accepted her and still reached her and still wanted to offer her, offer her living water. You realize there's no thing you could ever do that will ever push you away from the hand of God, you're always close enough to repent and turn around. Statistics show that 80% of you will leave church after youth group is over. It's just the way it is. Now, whether or not you, you come back to your senses, you come back to Jesus, you realize how empty the world is, I don't know. But I want you to know, more than anything else, you always have a place here. No matter how far you go, no matter how far away you go from God, you're never too far to come back here. I haven't become an expert at this yet. I'm talking while crying. But <clears throat> I just want you to understand that. Because sometimes your guilt will keep you away from the people that care about you the most. but it doesn't matter what you've done or what stupid things you do in the future. I'm always here I'm, unless I die. And even then I'll, I'll like phone you from heaven or something. I don't know. You can always come back here. And that goes for all of us leaders here. We care about you so much. It doesn't matter how many husbands you have. It doesn't matter how many times you go to those wells and find yourself empty. We're not going to judge you. We're not going to look at you a different way. We're going to see you as a wounded sheep that needs the Savior. I think that is so important for everyone that sins. You know, sometimes we look at people like dragons. And we look at people, this might be the most helpful thing I've ever learned in life. Sometimes people sin against you and you see them as a fire-breathing dragon. This person hurt me and this person did this and did that. Look at them as a wounded sheep. A person that needs the healing touch of Jesus. I don't know why you're laughing. I'm just, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't want to point that out, but sometimes uh, when you get serious, you want people to pay attention. So, I lost my train of thought now. Wounded sheep, yes. Sometimes... We see people as fire-breathing dragons. I think it is so important that we see people 
as God sees them. That God is able to heal people. You think that a person is beyond saving because they said this about you or they're an evil person? They're not. You think you could never forgive someone? You can because Jesus forgave you after all that you've done. So, I love you guys. I care about you. And I want to run my race in a way that I want to not just be the tortoise and start off slow. I want to run as fast as I can and not take a nap. I want to reach that finish line. I want to lay hold of Christ for which he first laid hold of me. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 13. I'm going to close with this. There is a beautiful passage in Jeremiah chapter 13 that Dave Berkey uh, taught at Imprint last week that I thought, you know, Dave Berkey is the, high, uh, the college pastor here at the church. This is so, so beautiful. So key in on this. Don't miss this. It's, it is so cool because what happens is the Lord's speaking to this guy, Jeremiah. He's a prophet. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, as he's the weeping prophet, you know, he's probably something like me because apparently I just cry all the time now when I teach. But he is told to take a sash and put it under a rock or put it under the Euphrates River and take it out again. So this sash represented uh, the Jewish people. And so by putting it under the river, taking it out again, it was a dirty sash. And Jeremiah was like confused, like, what are you doing? He says, well, take this sash and tie it around your waist. Like, okay, I don't really understand why you're making me do these weird things. This is what he says in verse 8 of chapter 13. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, In this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their hearts and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, will be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. So it's ruined, right? You can't use it for anything now. And that's what sin does. It ruins us. But hear what he says. This is so powerful. Verse 11. For as the sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. Jesus wants to, to cling you tight to himself. That you would know it's not just for shame. He's not, he's not flaunting you. He's not embarrassing you. He actually wants to take that shame and use it for his own glory. You're never beyond the reach of Jesus. And he uses even the bad things to bring us back to himself. And that is a message that needs to go out into the world. Not just stay here. That's something we need to share with all of our friends that have walked away from Jesus. That's something we need to share with all of our friends that, that are going to empty wells and filling themselves up and then and winding up without that hope. We need to share that, not keep it to ourselves. It's a beautiful thing that changes lives. And I see it happen all the time. And I am so excited for this year and what God's going to do at Bridge Fest at the Youth Rally. You know, so psyched about that because I really believe that that is one key to seeing God move, is planning and praying, seeing God work in the mission trips and the small things and the big things. It's you guys going out and evangelizing. I was talking to a student today about how he and his friend just went out evangelizing like with no leaders or anything else just for fun and talked to like seven people. That is awesome. Keep that up. 
Don't lose heart because if you don't, you're going to reap a harvest of joy.